Welcome to the Republican Professor this uh, afternoon in California and in North Carolina, where our guest is. We have with us Dr. David Yamani. Thanks for being here, David. Thanks so much for having me. I'm looking forward to chatting with you. Uh, did I say your last name right? You did. You did. Well done. There's uh, a My couple goodness. of different common pronunciations, and you know you got the correct one. So, well, good. I'm glad to hear that, David. Uh, uh, you are joining us from the East Coast, where there actually is a real fall. <laughs> there is. <laughs> I grew um, up in the uh, San Francisco Bay Area, and when I, it wasn't until I moved to the Midwest that I experienced the joy of both fall and spring. Okay. So I totally get that because I'm in Orange County, and I took a walk today in the neighborhood, and I grew up in Colorado. It's just not the same. It's not the same, but I could tell it's fall. I can tell it's getting to be fall, um, but... It's just not as dramatic as as the Colorado of my youth and yeah. uh, the deciduous trees and losing their leaves and stuff like that. So, yeah, yeah, we went from about 90 degrees and humid to maybe 75 and drier. And the, the trees are starting to change on campus. And at Wake Forest University has just a beautiful southern campus with uh, and, you know, we'll we'll enjoy the next two months of wandering around campus. So how did you uh, go from, I know it's a loaded question, but, uh, and loaded, ooh, we're talking mm -hmm. about guns and gun culture today. Uh, how did you go from California Central Coast to the South? And is that something you wanted to do or is that something you found yourself doing? Yeah, I think, well, I, I didn't, set out to do it but as you know you know the academic job market is uh, yeah. pretty tight yeah. and so you know i grew up in the san francisco bay area graduated as an undergrad at uh, berkeley uh, went to okay. the midwest uh, wisconsin yeah went mm -hmm. to wisconsin for for graduate school and uh you know, then just started a, a nationwide job search from there. So interviewed all the way from Washington State out to New Hampshire. Uh, mm -hmm. Ended up getting my first job at Notre Dame in Indiana, oh. and then uh, a few years later moved on to to Wake Forest in Winston Salem, North Carolina. And uh, I've been here happily since 2005. But it, it was definitely, you know, I'd no one really with you know apologies to those who live in South Bend. No one, no one really chooses to move to South Bend. It's not like a lifestyle choice that many people make. But Notre Dame is a great university, and. Uh, um, you know, as a Californian, I wasn't, you know, thinking I'd love, love to move to North Carolina, but, uh, you know, every place I've, I've lived outside inside and outside of California has become home over time. So, you know, I definitely think of, of myself as being from North Carolina at this point. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's nice. That's a, that's kind of a big change. Seems like now yeah, it is a big cultural change yeah. for sure. Yeah. You know, I think, uh, it's, uh, you know, that I, for me as a sociologist, you know, being in different settings than the one I was used to from my own youth, you know, that that becomes an advantage because it's when you're out of your natural environment or the environment that you feel comfortable in that you start noticing things more. And that that actually, you know, played a role in my developing interest in, 
in guns because I, you know, kind of went from a blue bubble in, in the Bay area and yeah. Berkeley and, you know, even in Wisconsin was a little sea of blue, uh, in a, in a, you know, pretty, uh, red state, Wisconsin and Indiana, yeah. you know, even, uh, you know, that little Island of, of Notre Dame, uh, yeah. you know, it wasn't really until I got to North Carolina, which I really started seeing, you know, kind of normal people who happened to own guns all around me. And, you know, that went from a kind of just a personal interest and then into a, into an academic project. So, you know, I think sociologically, if you're always around people who are just like you, it's, there's not much, uh, you know, spark to the sociological imagination in those settings. Mm -hmm. Yeah. David, have you always been uh, empirically minded? Have you always been just paying attention to what's around you and, and being interested in describing it, explaining things? I think so. You know, I, I have my intro. So students read uh, a, a very old uh, piece of Peter Berger's work, um, mm -hmm. Invitation to Sociology, published 1963. Uh, but part of his invitation to sociology is, you know, telling the students that, you know, sociologists are really like voyeurs, like professional voyeurs. And if you don't have, you know, a curiosity and an interest uh, in what's going on around you, what people are doing and why and how, you know, the culture is set up the way it is or a group or whatever institution or organization you're participating in. If you don't have that, that curiosity, you're not going to make a very good sociologist. So I think, you know, when I was younger, I did have an interest in, in why people were doing what they were doing, you know, to me, with me, around me. Uh, and, you know, my initial interest was, in politics, you know, I felt like, you know, oh. trying to solve some of those things that seemed to be problematic around me. And then I kind of you know, got a little bit of a sense of what the, the real political life was like. It was a little bit, uh, you know, too dirty for me. And so I retreated into the ivory tower where I could, you know, address some of those same curiosities of mine, but not have to get my hands dirty. David, uh, is it true that you have a Japanese heritage? Yeah, on my father's side, uh, through Hawaii. So, you know, my great grandparents immigrated from Japan to Hawaii. My uh, grandmother and grandfather born on the island of Kauai and uh, the sugarcane plantation camps there. And then wow. my father born uh, in Hawaii also, and then subsequently moved uh, to the mainland. Gotcha. Wow. My mother, European mutt, you know, so Scottish, okay. Irish, okay. Welsh. We gotcha. always thought we, we were uh, German because of her uh, paternal family name was Dice, D-E-I-S. But, you know, thanks to Ancestry.com, we know that uh, there's not any actual German in there. So it must have been, you know, some, some of our Scottish, Scots-Irish, Northern European relatives were either taken over or moved over into the uh, Germanic lands there and picked up that name before they came over to the United States. Did, did your mother, uh, were your father and mother alive during world war two? Uh, yes. Uh, my mother, I mean, barely, uh, okay. but my, you know, my father was born in 1930. So, uh, he was 11 years old, uh, when Pearl Harbor happened, uh, you know, mm -hmm. and he said, you know, he remembers, um, you know, some of the changes that, that took place shortly after that, like, you know, he, his 
his mother, my grandmother, uh, was you know fluent in in Japanese. She she wasn't literate. She couldn't you know write, but uh, you know yeah. she could speak and listen to the news in Japanese. And uh, but certainly, people of my dad's generation weren't keen on you know keeping that language up or some of the cultural practices up. And so, and it was also around that time that statehood was coming into effect. And uh, you know, so when when the government. Uh, U.S. government started taking over the schools. They had to do things like wear wear their shoes inside the school. He always tells the story of he would walk walk barefooted to the school, put their shoes on at the schoolhouse door, and then go inside. And then as soon as they were out of school, take the shoes off and walk home. So it was uh, an interesting. Was that on Kauai? On Kauai, yeah, the okay, island of Kauai, yeah, and why different experience? Yeah, yeah. So Waimea, you know, it's still a considered. Yeah garden island and you know at the time mm-hmm. you can imagine how rural you know it would have been um so you know he he it's i think very it's also rural to, even to this day it's still very rural indeed indeed yeah so yeah i think it's a there's some specific i think immigrant experience there because of world war ii and being of japanese descent but also right. some fairly common you know immigration stories of the you know the the second and the third generation, you know, kind of trying to, to move towards assimilation and, you know, downplaying some of the cultural differences that make, make them stand out. So we never, as kids, we never learned. He doesn't, he's not fluent yeah. in Japanese. Of course, my, myself, sisters and myself, not at all. So. Now, did you spend your whole life in California or did you, were you born in Hawaii? I was actually just by coincidence. I was born in uh, in Japan, out on an Air Force no base kidding. outside of Tokyo. My dad really? was doing uh, contract work for the for the government. He did telecommunications work. So my my oldest sister was born in Sunnyvale in the Bay Area. My uh, my next older sister was born in Germany in Wiesbaden at the Air Force Base Hospital there because of my dad's work and then i was born in in tachikawa uh just outside of of tokyo but only lived you know 18 months or so there and then family moved back to the bay area and that's where you know i was pretty much lived most of my life and was raised in the in the bay area wow that's that's very interesting background what was uh growing up in california like for you I, you know, it was where I grew up was kind of a, a sub suburb of San Francisco where there's, there's Silicon Valley, you know, people who couldn't afford to live in the peninsula or in the city, but worked there, uh, you know, would move out to Half Moon Bay was the name of the town I grew up in. And it was, you know, about 3000 people for most of my youth and it you know sort of geographically separated from the rest of the bay area you either have to go over we called it over the hill but over you know over the mountain or along the coast through through this kind of winding passage called devil's slide on highway one um they've since built a tunnel that you know makes it a little bit easier to traverse but how far uh, is that drive into the city it's you know with depends on traffic a lot but if right. you know with traffic uh if you take the traffic out it's probably a you know 20 to 25 minute drive in into the city um uh, you know same 20 25 my dad had about a 25 minute commute over into uh, san carlos in the peninsula for work so you know we were we were somewhat isolated uh, which made it hmm. have a very small town 
feel everybody kind of yep. knew everyone there were some yep. very common last names a lot of uh portuguese uh you know people who were involved in fishing uh certainly a lot of um agriculture still is quite a bit of agriculture there we we would eat these things called artichokes back in the 70s before <laughs> anybody knew what artichokes were and you know our parents would force us to eat brussels sprouts and you know now i come back and you know some of my high school classmates the yakapis have these brussels sprouts farms where they're just killing it because everybody wants to eat brussels sprouts now but uh, back then it was you know those were they had a different cultural cachet that's you know, funny. back then yeah i uh, bet a lot of those high-end restaurants are getting these those are his customers yeah <laughs> and so now it's changed you know my parents and sisters still live yeah, there it's changed a lot uh you know it's a kind of place where if you can afford to move out there yep by the by the coast you do and uh yeah, it's, yeah. but it's Amazing. it's easy for me because i visit i could but i could honestly never even come close to affording to move back there right you know, that the housing prices are just astronomical i i don't understand the the home price thing in california but that's not really why we brought you on i guess um, <laughs> we 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 are uh you're you're a sociologist right you got your phd in sociology from yes was it just say uh wisconsin right yeah and uh maybe it would be good for us to have a just a brief description of what sociologists do uh, just kind of get a handle on what you have later, a little bit later. But uh, sociologists uh, are different than anthropologists, and they're different from psychologists. Um, how would you characterize what sociologists do? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I don't know. I mean, I could we could probably talk for <laughs> well, an know, hour just just on that topic. Sure, but, uh, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, you know, sorry, I think sorry that... to torture you. <laughs> no, no, I mean, I'd be torturing the listeners more than me, but uh, I think, you know, some of the disciplinary differences that we have are kind of real, and a lot of them are the product of, you know, institutional politics and the economics of education and that sort of thing. So, um, you know, some of the distinctions that we make between the social science disciplines of political science, economics, social, anthro, psych, um, you know, are real and substantive. And a lot of them, you know, are strictly disciplinary in the sense of, you know, we draw those boundaries somewhat artificially, but, you know, I like to think, and I was told by one of my uh, mentors, Robert Bellow, when I was coming out of, um, Berkeley, uh, I told him I was going to graduate school in sociology and he said, that's great. There's nothing that you can't study as a sociologist. And so, you know, there's this old, 18th century idea of sociology as being the queen of the social sciences you know, because it is so encompassing. So, you know, I, I say it's really studying uh, anything from, you know, sort of two people interacting, you know, the dynamics of face-to-face -face interaction uh, all the way up to, you know, global economic and political processes. Uh, it can be contemporary. It can be historical. So, you know, the boundaries of sociology, I think, are are quite wide as long as you're talking about, you know, more than just trying to get inside of one person's head. So, you know, I think there is a social psychology, but a lot of so psychology focuses, 
on the individual. You know, anthropology, I think historically, we, you know, was the study of uh, sort of remote places or the developing world or, you know, yeah. other cultures, yeah. um, you know, but that, that distinction is sort of broken down as sociologists study the developing world more and anthropologists study the modern world or the, you know, the first world more. So that, you know, line gets a That's little bit uh, blurred. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. there's a political sociology, there's political science, you know, I think that there's right. a lot of collaboration that goes on, you know, you take someone like, you know, Theta Scotchpole, um, you know, is she a political scientist or is she a sociologist? Kind of hard, hard to say. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of things in uh, about human groups that puzzle me because um, I've taught logic for 15 years. And, uh, uh, you know, what I take myself to be doing when I teach logic is is helping people become more um, in tune with, or at least aware that there's a way to evaluate their attempt to persuade people. Uh, and there's a way to evaluate other people trying to persuade you that doesn't really attach to a group Um way of looking at things in other words uh, some people would say it's object objective i don't usually use that word it's partly because i'm not really sure what it means but um but uh, maybe like a an authentic i would say uh legit as the kids say way to <laughs> uh figure out if if the argument works and so it seems like so many uh groups in politics tend to think the same way about things uh, regardless of the reasons that are available out there somewhere. So the, the, there just seems to be these group forces at work that I don't quite understand. And yeah. uh, I, I, you know, I'm sure it's very complicated, but you must have some interest in that. Otherwise you wouldn't be doing what you're doing. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think that there's uh, some, people who specialize in in really those face-to-face -face or those small group dynamics and you know those those dynamics really are you know structured in in significant ways by status for example or power mm -hmm. um and yeah i tend not to focus on those small group dynamics but it okay. it's you know it's interesting to me because you know uh, it's not like doing a natural science. So I sometimes say, you know, the so social sciences are the real hard sciences because, you know, in the natural sciences, you run an experiment and the things should react the same way if all the conditions are the same. You know, you're right. looking at mechanical relationships and, and those sorts of things. But yeah. and, and when humans are involved, you know, you have human subjectivity, you have free will. Uh, and so, you know, if it's a it's much more probabilistic, right? You can assemble the same you know, set of people and run them through an experimental situation and you can get different outcomes, right? You know, right. the outcomes may be patterned in a certain way, but in a probabilistic sense. Uh, and, you know, I think talk about this a lot when we, we talk about, for example, I used to study religion, but now gun, you know, guns and gun ownership that, uh, you know, there's yeah. a, 
we can talk about statistically average gun owners, but you know, that only accounts for a certain amount of all of the variation in gun ownership. Right. And that, it, yeah. you know, we'll never be able to look at a person and know everything we can about their background and then right. be able to perfectly predict that person's going to be a gun owner. That person will not be a gun owner. Yeah. Uh, we just can't yeah. do that with human beings. Wow. Have you ever been on a jury? I have not. I've been called to for jury duty two, two or three times. And for some reason I've never been selected. <laughs> I, I noticed there's, there's a whole industry about jury selection and. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, it's one of those things that David, it bothers me, it, you know, cause I teach logic, you know, and I, it, it bothers me that I've been on a jury. I've been on a murder jury wow. before I've been actually on two different juries. Um, but, uh, the, the murder one was the one that was more pronounced and cause it was, you know, weeks long and, um, and actually, uh, kind of a profound experience on me, you know, sitting in that jury room. And I, I was surprised I was on the jury. It was in Compton, it was in California in Compton hmm. and, uh, which is not a place I lived <laughs> at the time. Um, but, uh, the the idea that um that, that the attorneys are are looking at uh, facts about you to try to determine whether their arguments are going to work bothers me mm -hmm. as just yeah. you know because it's a it's a philosophy thing <laughs> but yeah. uh you know um just thought i thought uh, now did you grow up with with firearms in the house did did not uh um you know yeah. kind of grew up outside of guns and and gun culture um you know if my friends had guns we they, it's nothing that they oh, talked that about right? okay. i mean outside of you know we bb guns excluded you know but uh okay. you know if if uh there were people i know there were people in my community who hunted but it wasn't like you know uh where you'd have, you know, trucks in the school parking lot with a gun rack on the back or, you know, students, you know, in, in camo so that they could go straight from, from the high school to the hunting grounds after school, uh, you know, and so to the extent that there was, were guns, and I think this is kind of similar to, you know, religion at the time that, you know, to the extent that those things existed, they were not very public. Uh, and yeah. so, yeah. um, you know, and that, that was the case also, as I said, you know, when I went to uh, college, when I went to graduate school, when I went to my first job. And so it wasn't really in, until I got to North Carolina that I started noticing that guns were a reality outside of what I might see on TV or read about in the paper. Uh, so I'd, I'd say my, my youth was fairly gunless that fits with my experience in central California, just the much, much less than yours. I went to school in Monterey and uh, spent some years there, uh, formative years there. Um, I was in the military at the time. So that did affect, um, my living situation. Wasn't, wasn't exactly, um, uh, you know, like going to high school there and having uh, private property there, but, um, yeah. It's uh, interesting, like uh, not to interrupt you, but it, no it reminds me of reading, you know, some of Steinbeck's old essays, oh, yeah. uh, you know, sure. of, uh, 
of Gilroy and Salinas. And, yep. he, you know, he oftentimes will just drop in there about how, you know, people had a lot of guns and people would be shooting their guns just in an unremarkable way, not like you right. know, hair on fire, but he just, he'd be reading about something he's commenting on and he'd, you know, mention how the neighbor had five guns. And uh, so, you know, that they're, I know they're there, you know, I, I know now looking back that they were there, but they were definitely not any kind of part of, uh, you know, daily or normal, normal life or conversation. Yeah. I, um, yeah, that's, that's insightful. You, you're reading, uh, those kind of historical little tidbits are interesting. I, I, when I, when I read, I will, uh, uh, make note of any reference to guns in, um, Oh, I'll just give you a couple examples. Uh, Laura Ingalls Wilder, you know, books. Uh, so different from the show, Little House on the Prairie, uh, which I didn't really watch a lot, but I mm. did watch it. And I just happen to know that Michael Landon, I think, personally did not like guns. Um, and I just noticed that in the show, I don't think I ever saw any guns anywhere. And so I was a little surprised when, as an adult, I was reading those books and guns are featured actually far more prominently than, than I would have thought now. Um, and I just, you know, I, I read Hunter S Thompson letters and stuff like that. Of course he had a lot of guns and he lived in big Sur for a while. Um, gives it, gives a little bit of an insight on what the sixties were like there. You know, mm. I, I just like paying attention to that. I'm just, I'm just curious. I, I go back up there quite often, um, usually about once a year, and I pay close attention to gun stores, where they are, if they're, if anybody's going in them. Uh, I try to talk to people about it if, if they're open to it, just to see what their attitudes are about it. Um, concealed carry is a big issue here in California before the Bruin decision. It actually still is a big issue here. <laughs> Uh, because we're living yeah. in a May issue state, which is uh, different than how you probably experience it. But Monterey County, interestingly enough, is basically a shall issue county, even mm -hmm. though it's entirely Democrat. I don't think yeah. there was any Republicans on the ballot even uh, and, and for many offices there. Um, but the sheriff basically acts like a Republican, and I'm not sure if he is, but it's interesting it's, to me. It's just fascinating that you would have a, a county like Monterey County with that attitude, and then you just go up a little bit further north, and it's like all it's exact almost exactly the opposite, but very similar political orientation. That's the kind of thing that just I don't I don't really quite a. I'm not smart enough to understand it, David. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, that's, that is interesting because I always kind of picture, you know, from the North Bay of San Francisco all along the coast, all the right. way down to San Diego as kind of being blue and more restrictive. So it's interesting right. that there, you know, there are some cutouts there. But, you not, know, if you look at the whole County. rest of the yeah. state. Yeah. And now in Monterey so, City, in Monterey City, uh, well, that would be it. I, I don't know, you know, obviously I haven't done any number crunching or anything like that, but just m based on my anecdotal kind of observations about things. Uh, uh, it's interesting that the little city centers don't seem to determine the policy for the county as far as the sheriff goes. Hmm. 
Anyway, I, yeah, but I'm, yeah. I'm like hypersensitive to like local politics like that because in my county, in Orange County and in L.A. County, we've been trying to move the ball in local politics, just just getting people more um, aware of how the the May issue policy and for concealed carry, which is totally discretionary, how that might lead to corruption, discrimination on racial or gender lines yeah. uh, it just broke i think today that the la sheriff is now under scrutiny for um some some permits that he issued to people that donated to his campaign and they got the permits like in one tenth the time that other people got the permits yeah so that's well corruption. certainly that's you know that's, that's happening corruption. in uh santa clara county the santa clara county sheriff is you probably I heard know. about that i heard about that but same so, thing you know very yeah. restrictive issuing unless you donate to the campaign and then hey right, you're right, right. good so and that i mean that to me that's that's not like a red blue issue that's just that's just corrupt political corruption regardless of who's doing it although on the on the gun issue of course okay. you know the more restrictive sheriffs are going to tend to be you know coming more from the the democrat side because they want right. to have more restrictive issue you know if you're a shall issue sheriff then how can you be bought you're already issuing you know permits on a shall issue basis so that's what i like about shall issue um but it seems this is the puzzling thing to me is when i because i'm in the academic world and i i'm i'm a fish out of water here david i'm i'm republican on campus and um uh the the uh the folks that i talk to about it that are open to talk to me about it they seem to be um uh just totally unaware of, of the issue so a lot of times i have to just kind of explain that background of what you know when when you're empowering the police to make these discretionary calls then you're empowering them to to put into force with the with the power of law under color of law whatever personal biases they have that you might not even be aware of mm -hmm. and it might not just be it might not be exactly corruption it could be just a bias you know like women can't handle a firearm that could be a bias and uh what's determining the policy is not in that case would be not whether this person is trained this individual this uh but but or even um the value of self-defense mm -hmm. you know as a reason so in california this is what's mind-numbing about this in california when you go through the the process under the pre-bruin thing well it'd be interesting to see what happens after but um People were going, twisting themselves and contorting themselves in these applications to come up with some reason to carry a gun when they wanted the gun for self-defense in the grocery store or in, you know, a park or something, mm -hmm. just like a normal activity, going to the car, uh, going to work. That's what they really wanted the gun for. Right. But they have to say on the application stuff like um a mountain lion uh may be around when i go hiking twice a year uh up in the sierras mm -hmm. 
And, uh, oh, here's a receipt for Bishop, California, you know, showing that I got gas there. And here's the uh, Lone Pine receipt for the sandwich I bought, you know, or whatever, the Dunkin', the donuts or whatever. And the sheriff will go, oh, okay, yeah, then herefore, therefore you have a special cause. <laughs> you can carry it into Ralph's tomorrow. Right. You know, it, it it's so mind-numbing, uh, the contortions that people were going through. And now the Supreme Court basically just said, no, self-defense in Ralph's is actually um, just as good as uh, Ralph's is a grocery store, in case you don't know. Uh, Ralph's is the same as Kroger, same as like King Supers in Denver. Uh that's just as just as good of a, of a reason as uh, the mountain lion, maybe twice a year, maybe, you yeah. know, that you, you know, how many people see a mountain lion, you know, I mean, right. it's very rare, but you're, you know, you might be frightened about the neighborhood you live in or. Yeah. Well, there's, and, you know, that's the, the idea that, you know, there are people, uh, you know, who tend to so let's just say for sake of argument, you know, people on the left who are, uh, skeptical of the objectivity of authorities like the police, you know, when it comes to this, allowing this discretion in terms of issuing uh, licenses to carry are, you know, much more at ease. Or I think sometimes when I have this conversation, it's like, oh, so you now you trust the police to make decisions, you know, on whether that's what's a black applicant yeah. should you know be able to get a care and then they the ba their basic response not the basic a common response is right that nobody should be issued these licenses that way you know right, it's right, it right. Yeah. it just takes discretion to yeah. a maximal level which is you right, know right, right. you you take out any possibility of bias if nobody can get one right um and then you know these of course start it that's not how it usually goes though because then donald trump gets one yeah Sean Hannity. I mean, he had one. one. Yeah. Don Donald Trump had one in New New York. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it, then it becomes just the very powerful get it. The very, and it's exactly the opposite group that you said you cared about. Right. <laughs> you know? I mean, that's that that's the puzzling thing, David. I don't. I don't. Uh, anyway. Well, I mean, there's a, just never... a profound discomfort with you know, as someone who came from that kind of background, right? You know, if you don't have any exposure to firearms other than through the media and television movies you know that those sorts of things you know that that you only see the downside of guns because the you know positive and normal things that happen with guns that's not news right that's not also not typically the subject of scholars who study guns you know that um now why is that do you think is it the group think uh, well, that, or, I mean, I think that, it? yeah, for, so, for, I'd say for, you know, if you think about like sociology and public health, there's kind of two groups that study guns a lot, okay. you know, so sociologists study what's wrong with the world, right? We, we teach classes like social problems. We don't have social no problems kind of <laughs> classes, right? Here's what's going right in society. You've never and taught that at, at Wake Forest? Over there? We don't have, it's not in, not in the catalog. And in, in fact, non problems. Yeah. Every once in a while, um, you know, the, um, I mean, I think someone once started a journal, like a, a spoof journal called like the sociology of the unmarked or something, but you know, the things that are not somehow marked as deviant or problematic, those fall outside the purview of, you know, our, our work really. And, 
um, you know, so there's every now and then on Twitter, you'll see a, a sociology professor post like, my students are getting really bummed out because I'm always talking about things that are wrong. Can someone post a link to an article or a book that has a happy ending or, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> and it's just like crickets, crickets. Or every once in a while, someone will try and find like, well, this one is mostly critical, but it points the way forward or um, so, you know, that's a, that's a bias of sorts. I don't think it's, you know, it's not necessarily a kind of cognitive bias, uh, in the way that we might think about in, uh, you know, kind of, uh, um, uh, in a negative way, although cumulatively it can have a negative effect in that it excludes a lot of reality from what we study, you know, and mm. I think, okay. you know, the, my, initial exposure to guns was my real estate agent carried one the guy I played tennis with had a couple you know the it guy that i knew you know from the neighborhood he had and a couple this is in north this carolina. is in north carolina yeah and so you know my i'm did, like, now, oh, did, like did those people chew tobacco did they have tobacco in their own yeah they you know they they uh you know was uh standard standard english speakers and uh you know no chewing tobacco didn't have like uh you know piece of wheat sticking out of their mouth that they no, suck no on. missing teeth or anything no no uh so some of those stereotypes uh i come from gun a, owners... a blue collar family everyone just have, uh, so i'm describing my own family just fyi i'm not making yeah. fun of them i'm just describing yeah. okay but this you know this is legitimately a common stereotype that people have of who owns guns right people who live in rural areas people who are less educated right um you know people who drive pickup trucks and um you know uh, me, i think me uh, i mean <laughs> there you go so well uh, my gro growing up my family right. yeah. yeah yeah and so you know i think that these are these are some true biases that people had including myself and uh, you know so when i start running into people who don't fit the mold like to me it's either you know people gotcha. who use guns for for criminal purposes uh, or, yes. you know, people who are rural and, you know, might have a need for guns because they live out in the country. And that's a, that's a kind of country thing, um, you know, to, so to but be living in the, but the victim on the subway didn't enter your mind because that no, doesn't fit I'm, either one. Yeah, no, I mean, I think those, you know, that's a, the, the kind of, and the, ex, those exceptional cases are easy to filter out. Right. Uh, you know, and that, that's more of those, I think, kind of cognitive biases that I was, you know, sort of trying to distinguish, you know, a bias in a discipline toward answering certain types of questions versus the cognitive biases that we all have, right? Finding mental shortcuts to reduce the complexity of the world. And one way you can do that is think of in terms of guns, it's either criminals or country people. And if something comes along that doesn't fit that, it just, you know, we cognitively filter that out until you get too many of those kinds of interactions. And then you have to say like, well, maybe it's not an exception, right? Maybe if I've just met five people in my close friendship circle who all of have guns for all different reasons, you know, inheritance from grandparents, you know, self-defense just for fun, you know, uh, but then it start those those anomalies start to accumulate and you kind of have to reassess that those heuristics that you're using to simplify the world. OK, that makes sense to me, I guess. Uh, 
when I was growing up, I didn't uh, have that particular cognitive bias. Uh, I mean, I grew up in the suburbs, but I, I witnessed uh, a crime early on when I was young that uh, it was actually multiple times where my mother was the victim and it was a firearm that prevent that that stopped that particular thing and i i i was early on i remember when the sheriff came to the house i remember looking at his gun i remember seeing it was a revolver that tells you something about i remember very clearly it was a revolver mm -hmm. so that was this would put this in the 80s somewhere which is what my, my childhood and what I remember about that was when they left. And I remember the feeling that I had was because my mother was so scared and so upset and they were gone. They were gone. And, um, I knew that they would come back if we called, they would eventually come back. They wouldn't come back right away wouldn't be like within minutes, you know, it was a Jefferson County Sheriff. I remember it very clearly the same, the same agency that, that responded to the Columbine shooting mm. because we were right there. I was a Columbine destroyer. That's, that was my neighborhood. I went to the rival high school Chatfield, but <clears throat> actually lived closer to Columbine and, um, and it was a firearm that stopped that. It wasn't the police firearm it was our personal firearm mm -hmm. and so so for example like when i when i'm watching stuff you know i'm consuming media or whatever i, I remember when i first started watching blue bloods the show the the new york show because i was curious about new york what it's like to live in new york and you know it's sort of like a kind of Republican-y film. I mean, because Tom Selleck is like this NRA guy and right. it has that feeling, you know, this, this law and order kind of a feeling, Giuliani kind of a feeling. And the very first episode of that whole series involved concealed carry, illegal concealed carry on a subway. Mm. And it was, it broke my heart because it, re it revealed a rift to me in the Republican party, which I, that I don't like it. I don't like it, but, but in any case, the Tom Selleck does his duty and, and, uh, takes this guy who was a victim of a crime. He was a victim of multiple crimes, no police around. He carried a firearm for self-defense. He had a legitimate reason to have that gun. He knew how to use it and he did use it. He had to use it. And then he was prosecuted for, the, the gun charge, even though he used it in self-defense. And that's what this whole Bruin case is all about. And so mm -hmm. you have this guy who's victimized twice. He's victimized by the, the immoral criminal. And I make a distinction between moral and immoral crime. And he's victimized by the law enforcement apparatus, the criminal justice system, which regards him as a criminal even though he didn't really do anything wrong. He was not right. an immoral criminal. And yeah. some of these administrative crimes are considered felonies, just as bad as uh, someone attacking you immorally. So um, 
I wanted to know, David, um, can you tell us what kind of classes you teach and, and how you're exposing students? Cause I, I follow the liberal gun club on Facebook mm -hmm. and, uh, I see gun curious posts, you know, yeah. and, and I, I see your interaction with your students. I'm pretty sure that was you, a picture of you with a, it looked like a student shooting a gun. Yeah. So is this true? What it, how, <laughs> it are is you do, true. how are you doing this? And, yeah. and if so, like, how did you come to, we want to hear your story about how you got into this. And right. Well, so I, uh, I got into the study of guns about 10 years ago, uh, you know, as this kind of confluence of my own personal discoveries, as well as uh, needing, you know, to start a, a new academic project that kind of burned out on doing the sociology of religion. And, you know, the guns just seemed so new to me, you know, as I was saying at the very start, that that voyeurism that is at the heart of the, the sociological curiosity. So um, shortly, you know, after I had studied guns long enough that I felt like I could teach a course then i started teaching this course i just called sociology of guns and you know when i was thinking about um you know how should i structure this course you know i didn't want it just to be a course on criminology or a course on epidemiology or negative public health outcomes you know i really wanted to to get at that fundamental sense i had that this is something that very normal people do um and i thought back to my own kind of introduction to guns, which was to go out and, and shoot under the supervision of a friend uh, of a friend and not because I was interested in guns, but because I was kind of afraid of them, but realized that there were a lot around. And so, you know, I came out of that experience shooting, you know, a little less than 50 rounds of out of a nine millimeter handgun. Uh, Did that take with, courage for you to do that? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's hard. I I don't know if I would, it's hard for me to assess that in myself, but it, I was definitely, I was afraid. Yeah. I mean, I, I felt, you know, what I knew of guns was that they hurt people. Yeah. And they're um, loud too. Yeah. They're, you know, they, you're having a, an explosion and an arm's length away from your face. So it's, I tell, yeah. you know, my, my students that quite a lot, but so I, that was such an important experience for me just to kind of you know demystify guns and to have some hands-on experience that i thought what i need to do for my class is go to a gun store have them talk about you know gun technologies uh gun how you buy a gun gun safety and then for anybody who wanted to go to the range everyone had to go to the range but for anybody who wanted to shoot they'd have an opportunity to shoot uh under you know close supervision and what's so this I, class called it's called sociology of guns how uh, often is it offered so i offer it once a year of uh this is the eight i'm teaching it right now this is the eighth consecutive year i've taught the course so i've taught it eight times in in eight academic years since 2015 was the first time and we always start with uh the administration the was okay with this obviously well Did i did time I didn't ask permission to take the students uh, to the range, um, but 
I didn't hide it either. You know, I, I, um, we had a little program where if you took students on a field trip that the university would reimburse you up to $200 or something of the cost of the field trip. And so Hmm. I'd pay the, the range for, you know, their time. And, you know, I would basically, you know, get a check from the university for the cost of taking the students to the range. So, you know, as far as I'm, does that cover ammo and stuff? Uh, yeah, the, I mean, it was kind of a package package deal. Uh, you know, okay. now, now I don't use that fund cause you know, our fundings, you know, fluctuate. So I, you know, the students pay a little bit of a, a fee for the, the range fee now. How many uh, now students are, how many students are signing up for the course? So the course is always capped at 16 students and I almost, you know, always have 16 students sign up with a, a couple on the waiting list. Um, and uh outdoor range well we used to do an indoor range when i taught in the spring semester which you know starting in january uh you know we went to an indoor range uh but then the last time we were there it's a public indoor not it's a member indoor range uh you know i had a couple lanes for my students and then a, a family came in and they were shooting an ar on the in one of the lanes and indoors, yeah. that was just overwhelming, yes, especially for the, most of the students who take the class have no background in firearms. Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> oh, know, so, so lately, I always try to go to uh, outdoor range. Um, and also with COVID, I used to take the whole class all together. But with COVID, I broke them into four student pods. So okay. we have you know, fewer people at a time. And that just worked much better you know students didn't have to stand around as much waiting for others there was less pressure to shoot so in the three years i've taught so 20 2020 2021 and this year with the four student pods everybody took the opportunity to shoot a 22 caliber pistol a ruger mark three a nine millimeter uh, pistol so either a glock uh, 48 or 17 and uh ar style rifle um and you know this includes usually two-thirds to to 80 percent of the students never having fired a gun before wow Um, and so you know i think this is this is is one of the things that makes the course different which is that you know before i go to the range before we ever meet as a class in a classroom it's the first thing that we do, and it kind of lays the foundation, an experiential foundation for the students, you know, with firearms. And we're going to talk about, you know, the we start with the normality of the history of the normality of firearms, uh, the contemporary normality of firearms, and it helps the students to start to understand why do people have these things, right? Because if you come from outside of you know, gun owning family or community or a gun culture, you don't necessarily understand why do people even need guns? So this starts to give them an embodied will see the power of it, right? Or they'll feel the fun of it, or they'll feel the challenge of it. Uh, And, you know, then they say, well, I'm, I'm, I may never be a gun owner, but I can understand why someone might want that. And that's a much better starting point than, you know, just bringing them in and me explaining the history and the technology of firearms and explaining why, you know, people have firearms. That Uh, first person encounter. 
Did yeah. you teach it that way from the very beginning or did you change as you went along and put the first person experience first? Always, always went to the range first. I don't, I don't, I wish I remembered. I mean, other than my own personal experience and how transformative for me personally, that first time shooting was, I mean, I can't think of other reasons why I wanted to go to the range first, but it worked so well that first time there was whatever else I might keep or drop from the course. It was really a highlight of the class for almost every student, right? They remembered the trip to the range. They remembered, you know, the insight that they got into firearms from this firsthand experience, you know, whether initially, whether they shot or not now, every, all the students tend to, to shoot. So, you know, they, some of them come away thinking, wow, you know, ARs are pretty cool or they're wow. extremely accurate or yeah. that's way too powerful for any civilian to own, right? Nobody, <laughs> yeah. you know, and that's fine. Like if that's, if that's what they come away from that experience with, at least they can say that's too powerful for a civilian to own. I know because I've shot one. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sure. we can work from there to, you know, other comparisons, you know, right. in terms of uh, caliber or whatever, but you know, that, the gotcha. having that as a baseline from which we do everything else in the class is really uh, something I feel lucky that I stumbled into because it's hard for me to imagine teaching the class without that component. What are the other components of the class? What else are you having them read? So, you know, we start with, uh, you know, kind of the history of guns. Uh, I've, I've focused largely on, a, on the United States because that's what I know. You know, I wouldn't be very good at teaching global gun cultures. Um, but, you know, history of guns in the United States and the legal framework. So interesting. Uh, I mean, I, I guess we'll said this is long form. So I'll, let me tell the the whole story and connecting back. Please to do, because said, our, was... our, our audience has an attention span, if you can believe that or not. Okay. <laughs> There's so you're curious you, kittens out there. Yeah. So you're mentioning uh little house on the prairie. And of course, yep. you know, for uh, a homestead on the prairie, not to have a firearm, if they could afford it would be remarkable to not have the firearm. Right. And so that, you note that the dis difference between the, the Hollywood portrayal and the, and the written portrayal. Yeah. So this semester, um, <clears throat> excuse me, I assigned some of a book um, by Clayton Kramer. We, I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, but he's he's sort of an amateur historian. He doesn't have a PhD, but he got a, a master's degree in in history from Sonoma State. Um, and um, when uh, the Emory historian, who's much better known, Michael Belisle, wrote "Arming America," uh, which was the the famous book that won the Bancroft Prize in American History. Uh, which was subsequently rescinded. I've heard of that and, story. Okay. Yeah. And he, he uh, lost his tenured full professorship at Emory university because it was determined that he had basically fabricated his data. Whoa. Clayton Kramer was one of the people who um, sort of brought to light these fabrications because he was reading travelogues um, that Belial's was, uh, quoting in his book or in his articles, and they didn't accord with the same travelogues that Clayton Kramer had read, right? And it's, oh, they were almost saying the opposite because Kramer was reading the history as saying everybody who could afford one had a gun, 
right? And Belial's is like, guns are very uncommon in early history. American gun culture was created in the mid 19th century by gun manufacturers and that it was extremely uncommon for people to have firearms in the, in the 18th century in the colonies and on the frontier. And, you know, a lot of people were just like, they love, you know, if you were anti-gun, you love that story because you're like, I told you so, you know, guns weren't part of American history from the start. And it was a gun industry creation. Um, But then, you know, it came out, he basically made, made it up. So anyway, I signed part of Clayton Kramer's book that he wrote in response to Belial's in which he just quotes, you know, he summarizes and quotes from these travel logs that people were writing, you know, coming from Europe and writing about it or people, you know, diaries from the U S and just talking every, every travel log just saying, you know, thank God we had guns, you know, people would go hunting and we ate well and, you know, women had guns in Arkansas and that was unusual for, you know, male European writers to see. And uh, so the students, I didn't think to set up the assignment by telling them the whole Belial story or giving that background. I just assigned them the Clayton Kramer stuff and they're like, we don't understand why you had us read 15 pages of travelogue after travelogue that's just talking about how everybody had a rifle and i was like ah yes well let me tell you the backstory to that and then that made it all make sense but you know i think that that idea that if you have limited exposure to guns and gun culture you could be led to believe from watching little house on the prairie or reading award-winning histories that guns weren't very common Uh, and you know you could get that sense even today there's a lot of people today who feel that guns are not very commonly owned in the united states you know when in fact guns are extremely commonly owned but Mm -hmm. we have these homogenous social networks right you tend to know people who are like you i tend to know people who are like me and you know people who own guns tend to hang out with other people who own guns and people who don't own guns hang out with other people who don't own guns. And so we have just this distorted sense of, of that reality. So the first part of class, you know, history, like Clayton Kramer's work, I have them read the the syllabus for uh, the Heller McDonald and now the Bruin decisions. So they can kind of see the legal framework that guides uh, uh, gun laws in the United States. So the, you know, I don't, I don't dwell on that. That's kind of out of my area. Yeah. Uh, but then, you know, bring it quickly in into the contemporary period and talk about how widespread gun ownership is, what kinds of people tend to own guns, do a lot on uh, concealed carry, uh, and the, what I call gun culture 2.0, which is the sort of contemporary defensive orientation, um, do a lot about the diversification of gun ownership race and guns, gender, sexuality. Um, and then, you know, I, ha- I do deal then with negative outcomes. So we'll talk about injury, suicide, homicide. I'll do mass shooting this semester. I don't always do mass shooting, but it's kind of current. Uh, and then finish with a little bit on on gun politics. But I tend to to try to focus away from the politics of guns because I t- think it tends to get in the way of our examination of the empirics of guns if that makes sense so that's that's the overall trajectory of the course wow 
That sounds like a fantastic course. And you had that structure the whole time? Or were yeah. you developing gun culture 2.0, which we got to drill down into that in a sec. But but were you developing your thoughts on what you call gun culture 2.0? You came up with that, right? You came up with that? Well, uh, Michael or... Bain, a gun journalist, came up with that phrase, and I borrowed it from him. Um, okay. But in All terms right. of in in uh, sort of academic circles, I've I've I would say popularized, yeah, popularized that term. When I when I hear the term, I think of you. Okay, um, then it's working. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You're as far as I can see, I'll tell you, you own the term. I mean, yeah. That's why I wanted to check. But so, did you when you were uh, coming up with this course? It seems like a lot of work to come up with this course and get it right the first time. Um, I mean, maybe it's just me, but whenever I teach a course for the first time, I'm always just wondering what part I'm going to get wrong, <laughs> you know, and, and you know that I got to change next time. But of course, it's too late when you're teaching it. But um, but did you have this framework the whole time? Did you have your thoughts developed on gun culture 2.0 already? I think I did because you know I. I started studying guns in about 2011. Okay. And I didn't teach this course until 2015. And I really got into okay. uh, the, the first study of guns that I proposed to do was actually on concealed carry. Like, why do people choose to, to get a concealed carry permit? What's the logic behind that? And, and so, you know, as I started to delve into that specific question, I realized that it was a much broader thing happening, that it was a broader cultural movement. It was a broader legal movement. It was a, you know, historical development. Uh, and so I, I had realized I had to step back from that discrete uh, focused study of concealed carry alone and take in something bigger. And I, and I, I landed on what was this bigger thing when I was listening to a podcast by Michael Bain in which he started talking about gun culture 2.0. And it just really resonated with me, right. As uh, you know, both as a person who, you know, was discovering guns individually as uh, in my personal life. And also as someone who was trying to get some purchase on what was happening around me. And it, you know, really seemed like there was, a new distinctive evolution of gun culture that was present that really did focus on armed self-defense, even though obviously armed self-defense has always been a reason that people have had guns, you know, all the way back into the, the 18th century. Yeah. And obviously before, but in the United States, you know, from the, from the colonial period forward. Yeah. Uh, but it was never really the kind of focus of, of uh, the culture as much as it is today, you know, in terms of the manufacturing, you know, everywhere from, you know, hardware to software, as I like to say, you know, training, law, economics, uh, marketing, you know, every aspect I think of, of gun culture really puts to self-defense at the center, even if all these other aspects of gun culture his, that were historic, you know, persist right precision yeah. shooting hunting you know all of those other activities collecting those still exist alongside this but really you know the 2.0 idea um you know was with me from from the start of my studies and so that got built into into the framework you know to say let, let's start with some history and legal development then that merges with 
the concealed carry movement and other aspects of gun culture 2.0. And then, you know, that takes me probably two thirds of the class to do that work. And then, you know, a third of the class on negative outcomes and, and politics. What kind of feedback are you getting from the students? Is it, does it vary uh, depending on what's going on in the news or does it, <laughs> does it, is it pretty uh, consistent through your eight years of experience? Yeah. I mean, there, there's always some, you know, every student has a, their own individual kind of response based on their, their background and their, their beliefs. Uh, but the, the students are pretty open-minded who end up in the class because I have to use a permission of instructor restriction on the course because going to the range, shooting is not required, but going to the range is required. So I need to make sure that the students know, like, if you take this course, if you don't go to the range, you fail the course. Um, and so the students are almost pre-selected to be a little bit more open-minded about guns because they're at least willing to go to the range to take the course. Gotcha. Okay. Someone who's so opposed to guns that like, I would never go to a gun range. That would, you know, be something that I couldn't do. They're not in the course. So, gotcha. um, you know, I think the, the students appreciate seeing what is for most of them an alternative point of view on guns, mm -hmm. you know, because they, you know, are tend to be from, you know, urban or suburban areas. Um, and, you know, they tend to come from non-gun owning households, very limited experience shooting. And so their dominant perspectives on guns tend to be that guns are bad. And, you know, so they don't come away from the course thinking, oh, guns are good, you know, but they do have that guns are bad narrative you know, challenged to some extent. And they yeah. you usually come away from the course thinking um, things are more complex than I thought coming in. And if I can get that across in any course that I teach, I feel like that's, that's a success. There are so many things that are interesting about what we're talking about. Uh, you mentioned stereotypes. Are stereotypes bad? How how are we to understand what stereotypes are and what are they bad? Should we avoid them or can we avoid them? Or I mean, how would you define what a stereotype is? Because sometimes yeah. I the way people use the term stereotype is it seems like you're just talking about your experience. It seems like you're just describing something. Yeah. Um, I think that that stereotypes are typically understood to be uh, overgeneralizing. Okay. And so that's where the kind of downside of them is, is that you do take from a limited experience and you generalize beyond what is, um, you know, appropriate. Uh, but then, you know, you start what, to think what about would be the harm in that is the harm that you're not able to see some facet of reality that would be important for you to see. Yeah. And I think, you know, generally like when, when sociologists think about stereotypes, we tend to have, have a sort of assumed modifier, which is negative. And so, gotcha. um, you know, um, positive, positive stereotypes are okay. <laughs> well, that I think that we, we still want to, to be aware of those, but you know, they, they tend not to be as harmful, right? Like, you know, if you say, you know, all immigrants are criminals, that's, you know, a negative stereotype 
that can be harmful in terms of the way you might interact with other immigrants beyond ones that you may have interacted with. If you say, you know, all Italians love opera, right? Also a stereotype, but maybe not as stigmatizing or as harmful, um, you know, in that case. We, back in the 80s, we would, you know, debate uh, at Berkeley, like if a stereotype like all Asians are good at math, right? Like, you know, is that a, a negative stereotype and that could be harmful? Is it a positive stereotype that is not harmful? You know, that raises some interesting questions. Uh, but I think generally a sociologist place that uh, modifier of negative in front of stereotypes. So you're overgeneralizing in a negative way. And that, you know, can be harmful in terms of stigmatizing individuals or groups. Um yeah, but we also should be aware of like, you know, what we're learning a lot more in terms of sort of cognitive science is, is the, these, uh, you know, heuristics and cognitive shortcuts that we right. all take in order to, yeah. again, be able to deal with, uh, you know, a world that it's just too complicated to deal with, you know, complexity and contingency and uncertainty all the time. So, uh, you know, if we if we use certain cognitive shortcuts, that's normal for humans to do, but right. possibly also, you know, could be in, in certain ways positive, you know, if we like things that are much bigger than us and have fur dangerous, right. <laughs> you know, that probably, you know, could be helpful if we think, you know, people who, you know, look different from us, dangerous that you know might not be a, a great uh you know kind of uh, heuristic to operate under yeah it is it's interesting because i mean just when people process what a threat is like uh fear when they have fear could be a, a nervous system reaction from trauma that they have you know background experience uh could be just poor reasoning or whatever but I, I think it's um when I think of a stereotype or, or a generalization, I, I usually don't put the word all in the the terms as a someone who teaches logic, all is a logical operator. And if one there's one example that doesn't fit that description, that the statement is false. Uh, but I think you know, like with the Asians are good at math, that's typically I would hear it would be Asians are good at math, not all Asians. Uh, because if I heard all Asians are good at math, the first thing I would think of is that's false. But but Asians are good at math. I, I have to kind of interpret that a little bit differently. I, do you mean I think you mean most Asians or uh, Asians in your experience? I'm not quite sure what the, the statement actually means, mm -hmm. but but it would be something like. I think I would just assume the person has experienced most Asians as good at math. Um, yeah. yeah. Just like in, in like, it, you know, we grew up with Fords and Chevys and um, it seems like they were breaking down a lot. <laughs> I like Fords, but mm -hmm. we'd have arguments about whether Fords are better than Chevys, but then Hondas, Hondas never break down. You know, that would be a, a false or true statement. Of course it's false. But you would maybe say Hondas are Hondas are good cars. And and 
they, in other words, they, you're going to have fewer problems with Hondas, um, mm -hmm. than, than you have with, the. of course that was when I was in Hawaii, I, I went to school in Hawaii. Um, I had a Honda and it broke down. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, there's always these exceptions, but, uh, and, you know, and take, for example, how people perceive black people. It might be that if you see a, a tall black person in a, a basketball uniform who's has a smile on his face, you don't feel anything. Uh, it might be that if you see one with a hoodie over his head, it looks like he's got a very aggressive look on his face. You feel something very different. And so it's not purely the race issue. It's, it's a host of other contextual issues that you're assimilating given your background and I just happened to you know, think of that example because yesterday I was driving in a part of L.A. that I don't normally drive in. And the person next to me in the vehicle had a hoodie on and was not looking at me. And then the driver was looking exactly at me for some reason, looked like he was extremely angry at me. And I developed a belief that I would be a victim of a crime if I looked at him for more than one more second. And I think that I probably was right in that belief. And I don't know why, but, you know, I mean, I can't explain it, but to me, it looked very aggressive to me and looked suspicious, the hoodie and looking away. And, mm -hmm. and it was like, well, why yeah. are you looking at me like that? I mean, probably on yeah. drugs. So. so, yeah, the behavioral cues, I think, are important. So, like, you know, I've, I've sat in on a lot of gun training courses as part of my research because it's such a significant part of 2.0. And there is a lot of emphasis on. You know, if if you stereotype in the negative sense uh, what a criminal looks like too much, mm. then you're actually going to make yourself somewhat less safe. So it, cool. it's, you know, some of the things that you highlight would be things that they would want you to be aware of in you know, terms of situational awareness, you know, yeah. eye contact, you know, yeah. facial <laughs> expression, demeanor, you know, physical demeanor. demeanor. Like, yeah. uh, the hood, like I, I get nervous if I'm around any young person who's got their hoodie up and they're not known to me and they're not making eye contact and, yeah, and in so the summer, what, whatever, whatever race they are in the winter you know, that's time, material. I feel that way, but in the yeah. summer, yeah. Right. So, you know, that's where I think the, you know, some of the, that racial dimension, you know, is that the key part? Right. Or is it all of those other indicators that are really the key part in, in making that assessment? And it's the, the problem would right. be if for the person who's just like, I saw that person, you know, they're African-American. I didn't know why they were there. That's danger right. versus right, 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 right. all of the other things gotcha. that, that yeah. go along with that. So, yeah, yeah that's yeah, That's good. Yeah, that's good. Now, can you explain or can you go into a little bit about your shooting experience you said you had a first time shooting experience and it was transformative to you um that made me think of the first time i had a shooting experience and i don't remember what it was to be honest with you it was probably a safe experience because i don't have any memory of it it would yeah. it was traumatizing probably but it was probably a very patient encouraging time with trusted people very young and uh, i must have that must that first person experience must have done something for me i think that maybe other people didn't have maybe i'm just just guessing 
Um, so what was your attitude toward, uh, firearms and self-defense before that? And then how did that first person experience as you experienced it? And as you reflect on it, what did that do for you? Yeah, I think, you know, the one thing to note is that, and I found this remarkable when this survey came out in 2017, found that 70% of all American adults have shot a gun before, you know, and so I was Did like, you say well, 17 or 70, 70, 70, 70% of all American adults reported that they have shot a gun before, uh, which to me, I just thought that's just remarkable because, you know, I, the way I grew up made it seem like most people don't shoot guns. Um, but you know, when I, when I went out, you know, I was realizing that guns were more common, you know, to the point that, you know, the woman I was dating at the time was in the coast guard. She talked about carrying a, you know, Beretta M nine as her service pistol. And, you know, so I'm like, wow, you shot guns. She's like, yeah, we had to qualify with, you know, the handgun and the shotgun. And, you know, she grew up in a rural part of North Carolina and, um, oh. so it's just like a completely different set of uh, backgrounds. So I was, you know, sh through her, I was able to get in touch with one of her high school classmates who was a trainer for the North Carolina, uh, uh, highway patrol. And, you know, he took me out and had that, that first experience. And I don't remember the first round I shot at all, but I do remember like there was, you know, no hole on the paper target um <laughs> and so but then you know kind of got get over that and then you know he starts giving me little tips you know stance grip uh trigger and i start kind of moving walking the the holes in closer to the center of the target and you know by the end of the experience i was like you know you really want to like whether you're right doing horseshoes bowling you know yeah, throwing right. darts at the balloons at the county fair you want to mm -hmm. hit the the hole in the center yep and so you know i came away from that thinking you know that was that was pretty cool yeah. um you know i remember you know one of the next things that uh my now wife and i did was go out and you know sh do some uh clay target shooting with shotguns you know because again that that challenge that yep. uh fun experience um and so that that getting a sense that you know guns are are something that you know, someone, even someone like myself could be involved with, you know, that was part of the breakthrough there it was like, gotcha. Hey, guns are not just these menacing things that hurt people that have no use, you know, except bad uses. So, you know, that insight really carried forward, um, into my personal life. And then also to my general orientation to guns and my scholarship. Um, but I'd also prior to that experience, and it was sort of disconnected from that experience was a, uh, disturbing encounter I had with a neighbor in my apartment complex and her, she said, boyfriend, I, you know, I think it was probably her, you know, boyfriend slash drug dealer. Um, and they were having a confrontation at her car in the parking lot. And, you know, I sort of, it, out of, uh, being a good Samaritan and also a naive Samaritan, uh, you know, went over to kind of intervene and see if she was okay. Um, and, you know, came away from that experience feeling, you know, quite vulnerable. I had my kids with me and uh, it played out after that. I won't bore people with the details, but I've, I've written and talked about this before. Um, 
But, yes. you know, so that kind of planted a deep seed of, of vulnerability in me mm. that later on, once kind of guns came to seem more normal to me, of course, those things naturally intersected, right? That how can I make myself and my family less vulnerable? Oh, guns. Okay. Yeah. Um, so it's a solution to a problem. Now, the normalcy thing is interesting to me. What effect does normalcy have or what it, did it have? Was that important to you to fit in? Was yeah, I mean, I think a pri- yeah. high priority for you. I think that the, the normalcy, you know, in, in the sense of overcoming some of the biases I had about what guns were for and also sort of swimming around in there, like who, what kinds of people owned guns, you know, criminals and, you know, people who are not like me, people in rural areas, people who are less educated, uh, you know, people maybe have different values than me, um, right. you know, and so. So, so you re- were worried that you might be the one member of a new group of gun owners. And was that kind of a lot of pressure for you? What if somebody found out? Yeah. You know, I think that I didn't feel pressure in terms of like being, well, I mean, it's interesting. Like you, if you're not if you're not familiar with guns and you go into a gun store or a gun range, you you do feel out of place in the sense that it can you be don't intimidating. Know, yeah. You don't know the norms, right? You don't sure. know the language to use. Yeah, you know, you do feel like you're obviously standing out as someone who doesn't know anything about guns. Did uh, you feel welcome? Or did, did was there an attitude at all that you picked up that was condescending or anything like that? And, some some I've some gun stores I think are just more welcoming than others in general. You know, yeah. I, you know, regardless of how much you, you come to realize that in in retrospect, like give us there the are address some people, and names of those gun stores. Just yeah. kidding. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, there's just we need to guns. police that. I think in the gun community. I think. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, there there are some you know people who work in gun stores who are just curmudgeons or know it alls. Exactly. You know, totally. And, and yeah. you, but when you're new, you think it's directed towards you yeah. later on, you realize, Oh, Never he's know. an asshole to everybody <laughs> yeah. who comes in this store. Right. Um, but there is a, a particular uh, gun store and range here in this area, pro shots range, uh, that I think is very, uh, sort of new shooter friendly, female friendly, kid friendly, well, you know, uh, I mean, I don't think it's perfect, but if anybody who I know, you know, says, Hey, where can I shoot around here? If I know that they're new to shooting, I always send them up that way. Uh, and, you know, I think that that, that can be really important, you know, for people to have that positive first experience. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, um, so I had, you know, that positive first experience and then, you know, the recognition that, you know, normal in the sense that it's common, but normal also in the sense that it's, um, you know, not only associated with deviant activity. Right. Right. And that, you know, good, you know, people who are, you know, good citizens who don't have any ill intentions, you know, have and use these things all the time. And so that recognition, you know, made it sort of easier for me to say, oh yeah, I, I won't, you know, stand out from my friends. Um, you know, I won't, it doesn't make me a deviant because I'm somehow interested in these killing machines. Um, <laughs> at the, at the same time, you know, um, 
I feel like there is so, so many strong negative associations with guns, especially in uh, sociology, you know, so as, as you know, from the title of your podcast that, you know, the academics tend to be more liberal. Sociology tends to be on the liberal side of liberal academia. Uh, so very, you know, strong sort of negative perceptions of guns. So I, you know, I'm not among my colleagues in my department. They, they, right. I don't hide it. I also don't like, I'm not wearing my Smith and Wesson t-shirt, you know, to the office. Yeah. Um, you didn't you get know. any new tattoos on your neck or anything. No, yeah, no, no okay. gun tattoos. I don't, <laughs> you know, I don't have gun centric stickers on my door. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, it's nothing that I, I trumpet, but I also, you know, I've, I'm more and more comfortable talking about it publicly. Uh, but it definitely was something that, you know, in certain settings you would feel stigmatized if you, yeah. you know, talked about being a gun owner and, sure. you know, that was, uh, you know, have having that sort of feeling of coming out as a gun owner, you know, is really yeah. sort of accepting that you're going to face some amount of stigma from some people at the same time, it can never be perceived as more normal. If certain people are constantly hiding the fact that they're gun owners, like my many colleagues at Wake Forest who, you know, will send me private notes or they'll, <laughs> you know, come see me and just, you know, pull me aside and say, Hey, I'm, I'm, in, I'm thinking about getting a rifle. What do you, you know, recommend or, Hey, I have a gun. I own a gun, you know, and, and I totally understand why they they do it like that because it's the why risk yeah. the stigma yeah. of being right. out as a gun owner because um, you know what good can come of it you know what bad could come of it and and what good could come of it unless you want to like make it part of your cause to normalize gun ownership. This all makes me laugh because I have firsthand experience of exactly what you're talking about and. Uh... <laughs> Well, I, let's and and I and I want to be uh, as clear as possible. I'm speaking for myself on this. Obviously, I only speak for myself. I'd never speak for anybody else. Um, but but uh, when when David or Doctor Yamani is is talking about what the culture is on campus, um, it a lot of folks that I know tend to just assume that. Um, somewhere like Wake Forest or somewhere in North Carolina, like the University of North Carolina, would be totally different than Berkeley or or you know that maybe Madison, Wisconsin, would be totally different from Berkeley or Boulder. And Boulder is just just you now Boulder was our place in Colorado. Mm -hmm. But but the 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 uh, academic environment is a it can be kind of a tight knit community in certain fields and they all hire each other and, and oftentimes have the same ways of looking at the world. And, and so you might have a field like sociology that is um, I think it's fair to say monolithically Democrat or socialist or something like that it's left wing. Definitely. Um, what I mean by that is it might be like that the numbers might be something like 10 to one, or something in a department uh, that we even know about. And it's hard to get those numbers because um, there is this 
desire to fit in on campus. Um, there's a there's a way that people are evaluated on campus, and one of them is a, being a good fit. You know, being collegial or mm. or and and that that can be so subjective. It could just mean that whether they like you or not, um, not, not necessarily whether you reply to emails or that you do your share or, you know, you respond to student complaints on time, but, uh, but just this, whether they like you, you know, and I'll just share a, a just a brief anecdote in, in California and Los Angeles, right after Trump won. Well, actually this was a, uh, no, this wasn't right after this would have been, um, this would have been, uh, the spring semester. So this was in January and it might've been that Obama was still president. Maybe I can't remember, but it was early on. It was Los Angeles. It was Loyola Marymount university, which is a Jesuit school. And the Jesuits are the more left lefty of the, of the Catholics. I've been teaching there for over 10 years at that point. And I wore an NRA hat and I just wanted to, I, I wore it as an experiment. I just wanted to see, cause people knew who knew me kind of knew where I was coming from. I was never annoying ever. I'm telling you, I was, I didn't have anything on my car. I didn't have anything. Um, you know, I had a, I got this free NRA hat. <laughs> it was free and it was camo. And in the back of the NRA hat, it says founded in 1871, which is when the organization was founded right after the civil war. And, um, I didn't have anything on my office door and I'm talking about in a context where if you walk through the spaces, you will find, um, I, I don't know the exact numbers, just roughly speaking. I, I think I'm probably being. I'm skewing it toward toward the opposite of my view, just to be safe. I would say it's safely, it's 100 to 1, the types of stickers and stuff you would see, uh, you know, on, on campus. I think I saw one pro-life sticker. And so when I say 100 to 1, I mean there's exactly one sticker on the entire campus. Maybe. I mean, there might have been something else somewhere, but I didn't see it. So I didn't have anything like that at all. And I would have the the young Americans for Freedom come and ask me to be the faculty advisor and, and I'd have the young Republicans come. They were seeking me out because they didn't know anybody else. And I was just an adjunct professor. Mm -hmm. And I was very vulnerable contractually. And my chair at the time had a, a uh, plastered over his 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 uh his office door this huge dramatic poster that said that that basically this is fascism this is a fascist regime coming into power and we need to do everything we can do to stop it and this is this is the guy that decides whether i get rehired mm -hmm. so i i wore this nra hat i just wanted to see what would happen and um and I had the same thing happen to you, David. I, or, well, I mean, I'm, I'm not attributing my views or anything. I'm just saying my description is I had people going, hey, nice. I like the hat. Or I had people and it, they were it was very unexpected. I like a math professor say, hey, I like your hat, you know, and, um, 
So I had this encounter in the theology department, which is right next to the philosophy department. We shared the same kitchen. And this guy I'd known for over a decade, pleasant interaction the whole time, was almost dropped his coffee cup when he saw the hat. And so I explained to him, I said, I appreciate um, the history of, of firearms ownership. I think that they've done a lot of good work. I don't agree with everything they do, obviously. Just like I don't agree with everything in the Republican Party. I'm sure you don't agree with everything in the Democratic Party, I said. And I'm sure you don't agree with everything that Catholics have ever done. You teach at a Catholic school. Um, you know, why do we have to always preface what we say with with these ridiculous prefatory remarks but that it was founded by union officers after the civil war they had just freed the slaves and uh and it's a civil rights organization and i believe in it and um i think they've done good work for example they paid for otis mcdonald's lawsuit against mcdonald versus chicago they won they won attorney's fees in that case the taxpayers had to pay the nra because the city of Chicago didn't want Otis McDonald to have a gun. They paid millions of dollars of tax money, and Otis McDonald was black. Anyway, so I, I shared all this, and, and it was an interesting encounter. That was the last semester I worked at Loyola Marymount University. Wow. Spring semester of 2017. It, really, it actually happened, David. It really did happen. Man. And so my little experiment, um, you know, it, there's there's a real pressure to fit in and it is real and it has dollar signs behind it. And if you have a house payment and, you know, you, your your neck could be on the chopping block. Yeah. As uh, I, I figured out mine was. And um, yeah, so, well, that, you know, to that's to the, you know, the point of, you know, you people know what you know what they could lose they don't necessarily know what they can gain from you know being out in certain ways and so you know right. people people play it uh, uh safe well, and i always tell you know people like i'm i'm a tenured full professor uh, i was not full professor when i started this project but i was on the verge i had my lat my you know the book that was going to get me promoted was coming out and i was looking for a new project if I was an untenured assistant professor or a term, you know, professor or anything like that, yeah. I would not doing what I'm doing for sure. It would just maybe it would be okay, but <laughs> the know. chances of it not being okay. And you know, and if I, you know, think about moving, you know, for a week forest is I'm not hello, provost. I'm not thinking of moving. <laughs> I don't want to move. Uh, but you know, I like I've Knowing the position I take towards the study of guns doesn't put me anywhere in the mainstream of sociology. And so I'm much less mobile than but, if I, you know, yeah. did guns and the the death of American democracy or, you know, guns and the rise of white supremacy or any of those other topics, people would, you know, be much more you know, mainstreamed to sociology than guns are normal and normal people use guns. Uh, you know, that's, that's going to keep me awake for us. Wow. Not that I want to leave. Wow. 
So I think I'm not going to test that because I don't want to no. leave, but I believe that no, to be you true. You don't want to test that. Yeah, I totally get it. Um, yeah, and I, I'm glad you said that because I think it's uh, people need to understand that there sometimes is a a cost to doing interesting work like you're doing and for following your your genuine curiosity. I mean, that's that's what a scholar is supposed to do. Um, and I'll just put a plug in here for any Republicans listening to this that that are skeptical of tenure. I, I just think that that's the wrong attitude. I, I think that tenure is extremely important. I think it's just as important for judges. Just, you know, if you read the Federalist Papers on why judges have tenure, it's because they're supposed to be insulated from, they're supposed to be able to follow the the evidence where they lead. Now, there still is groupthink and there still is harmful, like, you know, um, dynamics at play that, that can squash uh, dissent sometimes. But, um, but the fact that you have the ability to uh, still pay your mortgage and, uh, and do this kind of interesting research and take a risk, like having this course sounds like a fascinating course. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, you would, it wouldn't exist without tenure. No adjunct could possibly do what you're doing. Yeah. It's not there, maybe at Hillsdale college or something, but not there. Right. Yeah. Now with yeah. gun culture 2.0, David, some of the most interesting weapons I've ever come across are these old Colts that you can fit in your pocket, like the 1908 uh, pocket hammerless uh, 25, uh, 25 auto mm -hmm. or the uh, 1903 35 AC 32 ACP that you can, that's pocket hammerless. Yeah. Um, when did, I have to believe that those were they're developed for concealed carry. And actually those are very safe weapons because they have two safeties. They have the grip safety, like the 1911, and they have the thumb safety, just like the 1911. Yeah. And those are the kind of pistols that I would trust my life to if I had to. I mean, the, the cal okay, take away the caliber, all you know-it-alls, but just take <laughs> away the caliber <laughs> consideration. I would not want to be shot by a 32 and and certainly not eight times and um yeah. they're just in terms of it not going off i would trust it not going off you know no no negligent discharge but but tell us what gun culture 2.0 is is it is it the case that there were these weapons that were designed for self-defense but it just wasn't a common theme back then or when did the yeah. gun culture 2.0 start yeah. So, you know, I think like, like all sort of demarcations like this, that they are a heuristic device that don't perfectly capture all of the nuances. Uh, and so I, you know, I sort of do a demarcation mm -hmm. of, I guess I had to backdate it to call it basically gun culture 0, 0.0 because I've locked myself <laughs> into 2.0, but you know, the, the foundational, reality of guns in the united states that were you know used for um you know hunting and for home defense and for defense of the community you know that was a reality in the united states but you know almost unremarkable in the sense that you know people just they were sort of tools you know that that there wasn't you know a lot of 
belief and symbolism built up around them in that early period. Um, you know, and I think that stretches into the into the 19th century. And then you do see the emergence of what we would call gun culture 1.0 that's more, you know, focused on recreational hunting and sport shooting, you know, so you see people starting to hunt beyond what they need just for food. They hunt for sport. Um, they engage in in sport shooting, you know, more formalized uh, target shooting competitions and clubs. Uh, you know, back in, again, to go to some of Clayton Kramer's uh, uh, stories that he has captured from the historical record, you know, you get you get some bored people, you know, in in the 18th century sitting around and they got a rifle pretty soon they're going to start seeing who can shoot the rifle better right (laughs) who can you know who can hit that tree stump 100 yards away over there right or who can shoot the most squirrels so there's a natural kind of element of that but what when it becomes formalized into you know we have a shooting club we have annual competitions we have turkey shoots you know we start to take glass balls and fill them with feathers you know and shoot those when you know when we can't hunt to practice our hunting you know and that becomes then clay target shooting so you know that whole say you know 1850 into you know through a lot of the 20th century this is kind of gun culture 1.0 it doesn't mean that there isn't you know, for some people, guns are tools that they have to shoot varmints on the ranch, yeah. you know, whatever. Some people uh, who primarily have guns for self-defense, um, you know, the right. even before some like the pocket hammer, let's see if you 18th century derringers, you know, small pocket revolvers, you know, there's mm-hmm. from from the whole idea of, in, of having a pistol you know, a pistol is primarily a defensive weapon in the first place. It's just a matter of, right. you know, finding a, a way to make it reliable and multi-shot. Um, so right. that's always, that's always there. It's just not as central to that, though, that uh, kind of symbolic and systematized orientation to guns that I think characterizes a gun culture, right? The mere presence of the gun doesn't make a gun culture. You know, it's when it starts right. taking on additional beliefs, norms, social organization. Okay. Um, and and so when we when I talk about the rise of gun culture 2.0, it really starts in, in the 1960s. We can see a shift, you know, in people's orientations much more toward, you know, why do I own guns? What types of guns am I looking for? It's going, yeah. you know, more in the direction of uh, defensive purposes. Um, which again, doesn't say all of these other things, you know, there's still people for whom guns are unremarkable tools that they're just have around because they need to do certain things. There are people who hunt recreationally. There are people who are competition shooters, long range sniper. Like there's so much diversity within gun cultures. There's sometimes I regret using this term gun culture 2.0 because it's some, it's easy for people to think, you know, oh, all of gun culture is this and okay. you know that's not the argument that all of gun culture is this it's that the the sort of center of mass or the you know the the dominant orientation toward guns focuses on their their defensive use right at, at the same time all the other things exist many people have guns for multiple reasons yeah. um but but you know and, and each looking... each of these designations for lack of a better term is uh is a dis- 
kind of a rough and ready uh, generalization. It's true generalization that that attempts to to capture the why guns are normal or something. Is that was that a fair way? Yeah, to say I mean it? they all they all really focus on the normality of guns. You know, yeah. that's a common thread that would make know, it a them. culture kind of yeah. right. Yeah, and also and, you know the the idea that that there's all also always been negative outcomes with guns you know accidental death and injury and suicide you know that's also there but it but it's not it's not the primary thing i think that's important to understand about guns right because you know if there are you know 80 million gun owners and 400 million guns and there are you know less than a hundred thousand uh you know deaths at the hands of guns in any given year most guns are not out killing people right uh, and that's <laughs> to say the least yeah yeah that which w- isn't to say that it's not important to understand no you know, those, yes, those exactly. deaths and injuries but right. it is to say we're missing this huge reality there is there. yeah that's right the contextual the way to contextualize it the way it yeah i mean take for example suicides which is just horrible i mean it's just why anybody would want to to do that is itself horrible you know and and then that particular way of doing it is horrible um the there are some people on on my side of the political spectrum that might say something kind of callous like they were going to do it anyway or something like that you take a gun away they're going to do it anyway they're going to find a way to kill themselves and i i don't really think that that's true i i think that a firearm makes it uh if someone is in that position a firearm makes it i think probably more likely possibly maybe i I don't know if i'd say probably but i would say for some people it might be probably then just jumping off a bridge or you know running in front of a truck or something or, or taking a bunch of pills um just just like mm-hmm. you know i mean um i i don't know about women i think for men that's probably true i don't know about women but uh for i think that yeah. i think women um based on what i've read uh would rather take pills or something like that but um yeah yeah, yeah and Definitely. i think we need to to pay more attention to that you know so um yeah there, i think there's some things that um you know kind of the some of the things that sort of attract people to firearms also are correlated with reasons why you know generally you know uh, sort of older white men you know have so much gun suicide you yeah. know because you know people who tend to own firearms also may tend to believe more in self-reliance they may tend to be more individualistic they prize their independence right and one some of the big reasons why people commit suicide is you know because they don't want to be a burden on other people right that's true or they you know that they feel like their their lives are not as useful anymore um and so uh you know that there's that that relationship there there's a you know kind of um 
cor a correlation that's driven more by the beliefs than by the gun itself you know and i think uh that that's something that you have to you have to really be sort of deep inside and understanding gun owners as wow. gun owners and right. as people and where their beliefs are you know why why is suicide so high in alaska i mean is it because there are so many guns or is it because the way alaskans think right why are you right. living in alaska you know because you want to be more free you want yeah. not to have people breathing down your neck you don't yeah so but then that you know, comes think, at a social uh, cost those too, are some things resources that, yeah yeah that, that yeah, comes absolutely. at a social cost yeah yeah um but yeah i think you know there's i oftentimes say you know there's nobody who's pro-suicide um but on the other hand you know, there was a struggle, you know, that's been going on a long time for euthanasia, you know, that right. there are people who want it to be possible for people to say, hey, I don't want to live anymore, mm. you know, and there are many gun people that I know who are like, it, you know, pains me terribly that I've lost this friend, but I, how, you know, is it my place to question their decision you know, that their life was not useful anymore. They didn't want to continue to live or be a burden on other people, you know? So we do, I think, to some extent think, you know, which, which is obviously not, I'm not endorsing suicide, but right. I'm saying like right. there, there are, you know, a range, a range of views there. I and mean, we want to prevent the ones that are, are preventable, but, you know, I'm, I would be pro euthanasia myself, you know? Okay. Um, if, if the, if, you know, if it was done in the right way, you know, and I think Not that's sure. the thing with, uh, that I think you're hearing, I, you know, if you try to commit suicide in certain ways, it's harder. If you have a gun, it's right. harder to take that back. Right. You can take right. some pills, you know, cut True. yourself, cry for help kind of, you know, situation. All um, up on a building. If, yeah. 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 Um, so yeah, that's a bit a bit of a morbid uh, topic to get onto, but yeah, it is. I could tell you thought about it. <laughs> yeah, well, I you know we do I do teach a, a segment on that because you know that that's part of the reality. It's part of what people are concerned about, and I you know I don't want to you know just say hey, this is all that's important about guns. These other things are unimportant. But you know I feel like the way I approach it puts that in a, a different sort of context for for people say, and to say like gun owners, because suicide disproportionately affects gun owners, then gun owners also are disproportionately concerned about suicide. Yeah. You know, and so that there are efforts, uh, you know, within the gun community to try to address suicide. Uh, so it's not like, you know, right. gun owners don't care about suicide and, oh, we're not willing to give up our guns to help, you know, reduce suicide. Those right. kind of sort of arguments I feel like are, you know, really uh, wrongheaded and don't really capture the spirit of, you know, what gun owners are really like. Uh, do you feel comfortable? Um, well, if you don't feel comfortable, you could just not answer it or whatever, but do you carry a gun? Or yeah, I mean, I have a I have a concealed carry permit in in North Carolina, and uh, I mean, I don't I don't carry where I'm not legally allowed to carry. I'm not one of those sort of you know folks that are 
feel like, you know, take the law into their own hands. But I, you know, I totally understand people who take that approach. I don't condemn that. Uh, but for me personally, you know, I carry where I'm legally allowed to carry and I feel better for it. You know, I, I don't expect that in 99.9% .9 of the places that I go and the things that I do that I would ever need to defend myself with a gun. Um, but I, you know, if my wife and I are out walking around our neighborhood or in the city or we camp or, you know, we'll go to the grocery store, you know, wherever, uh, if I know that I'm not going to be in a place where I can't legally carry, you know, I, I will try to carry when I can. Does that make you feel safer? Does it make you feel less vulnerable? I definitely feel safer. You know, I don't, you know, I don't have any illusions that, you know, I'm going to be John Wick and I'll, you know, be able to shoot <laughs> my way out of any possible situation. And I definitely, you know, I'm risk, I'm a risk averse person. And so I definitely think of all the, you know, ways that things can go badly. You know, yeah. if I'm, my wife and I are walking, you know, around downtown and someone comes up and says, give me your wallet and phone. I'm not just going to draw the gun and start blazing away. I probably, the first thing I would do is give them my wallet and my, my uh, phone and see if that resolves the situation. Um, you know, but, but if, and if someone came up to me and held a gun, you know, to my wife and said, you know, give it up, then I have to start, you know, thinking more seriously about, you know, is this the moment that I have to try and intervene because I don't want to get shot. I don't want my wife to get shot. So it's, a. I think that people yeah. who are not, you know, serious about people who are outside of sort of this gun culture 2.0, just it's that shoot first and ask questions later. And, you know, certainly in any human community, including, you know, knitters and, you know, uh, people who like to play bocce, there are idiots in every human community. And so if there are people who have guns then certain proportion of the people who have guns are idiots and will do stupid things. Um, and there are documented cases of this, but there are, fairly rare because every time someone does something stupid with a gun, it's on the news and it's not running on the news 24 seven, right? Every once in a while, someone will, you know, shoot at someone shoplifting at a Home Depot, right? Mm -hmm. That'll run on the news for a couple of weeks. Uh, but generally people who, you know, carry firearms for self-defense do, you know, are, you know, pretty prudent and responsible. And that's why we don't have a, a lot of cases for all of the millions of people, tens of millions of people who have concealed carry permits or who can carry legally in a permitless state. You know, you don't have uh, bad shootings, you know, gotcha. you do, but you don't have in proportion to the number of people, you know, who can legally carry firearms. It's not happening all the time. So, uh, is it legal in North Carolina for college campuses to have concealed carry permit holders carry that on, on the campus? I, um, I should know this. I know I, I mostly focus on Wake Forest. Wake Forest has posted no carry oh, okay. uh, as a private institution. You know, it can decide. So I think that the, I think that the, that it's not, it's not like Texas here, but you can you can have a gun i think in your car at the university of north carolina 
I don't think you can carry a gun on your person on the University of North Carolina campus. Okay. Although don't take my word for that. I should know that, but I just don't. Um, most, you know, I think, I think of college campuses generally as being, you know, places you can't carry is just overwhelmingly determined by my own campus. Okay. Uh, Have you thought about red flag laws? That not, not in great depth. I mean, I, I think that they're, if they can be done well in ways that, you know, offer protections that they can, can be potentially useful tools to, you know, keep guns out of the hands of people that we don't want to have guns. Um, you know, I, I, I see there's some legal action taking place down in Texas where it may be moving towards, you know, that the, the felon prohibition on gun ownership may be going down with the Bruin decision. Um, I personally, you know, feel like one of the ways, if we're going to have a society in which guns are widely owned, we also should have ways to ensure that the people have guns, you know, that in reasonable restrictions, you know, should be in place. So felons, drug addicts, uh, domestic abusers, um, um, you know, and, and then also potentially people who are experiencing short-term crises. Um, there's some interesting things going on with sort of voluntary um, um, pro- sort of self-prohibition. Like I've turned my guns over to someone to hold them for me if I'm, you know, know that I'm experiencing some emotional crisis or, you know, those kinds of things. So again, I think there are things that are happening within the gun community itself. They're trying to address some of these problems without always making it a law like it's you know, right. i think um you know there's a, a tendency among uh, you know liberals or democrats th- this is a problem what law can we pass to address that problem yeah as opposed to saying you know how can we maybe incentivize individuals to act in the way that we want them to act or how can we give them options to act in the way that we might want them to act, you know, to say, Hey, you can store your guns at this gun store. No problem. When you feel like you're ready to have them back, we have a process by which you can get them back. The police aren't involved. The state's not involved. You know, it's a private transaction that, that we do. Um, so, you know, I think that 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 those are some promising directions. Yeah. Yeah. Because a a hold my guns, yeah. So I was just say there's a thing called holdmyguns.org, which is trying to promote this idea. Um, there's, a, you know, and so, some states have been developing, um, you know, databases. Like I think Washington State has one where you can go on and say, you know, search who in my area, you know, is willing to, you know, take possession of my guns on a short-term basis, and you know, it'll identify typically gun stores, some some police departments, I think, though. You know, some people maybe have a reluctance to do that, but, uh, yeah. um, and it's not easy. You know, I think if I was a, if I'm a, a gun store, I'd want to have some assurances or protections sure. that if, if I take these in and then give them back, yeah. I'm not going to be held liable for giving right. them back. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, those are, and those then are... the cost too, is it a nominal cost? And if so, yeah. how do you really make right. a profit? Gotta yeah. have some profit. I mean. Yeah, be, potentially, or, you know, it, it could be you. seen as a, a public service kind of thing. And, you know, I think that, a, that like a lot of, you know, gun real, stores. Real are... estate is expensive here in California. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
so anyway this is yeah yeah exactly these are just some of the ways i think that you know uh some creative thinking yeah yeah. you know can be helpful in ways that and people who are you know the more involved you are with guns the more you understand some of those the subtle dynamics and um you know i'm oftentimes asked by uh like for just recently the uh, uh uc davis's gun violence prevention research center has a newsletter that is primarily directed toward um clinicians as i understand and they asked me to write something and you know so i want to write something that helps clinicians to understand you know why when something that seems very obvious to them like you have this risk in your home you know they're going to ask you about you know how much do you smoke how much do you drink do you have a gun you know why why would gun owners be reluctant to answer that question or to engage in a conversation about that with a a medical provider who, I mean, I, there's a lot of people who are extremely down on this, but I feel like, you know, that, that depending on your personal circumstances, having a gun in your home can be very risky. Um, You know, if you're in an abusive relationship, alcoholism, you know, uh, but how, how do you create a situation in which patients feel comfortable that, talking yes. about that yes. with their doctors totally so yeah the, yeah that's because what one thing i don't have the answer just yet but i'm thinking about it Ooh, i can't wait to hear what you come up with on that because this is exciting to me because a lot of folks that i run around with we are just suspicious of bureaucracy in general you know and it could be a private corporation bureaucracy just anywhere where the feeling is in a bureaucracy that it's not, it's not the Andy Griffith show over here. You know, it's, you don't know them personally. And even if you do, I happen to actually know the sheriff of orange County. I've sat next to him and in, um, uh, fundraisers. I mean, I don't know him very well, but he would recognize me and remember me. And, but it, but there's a whole bureaucracy and, you know, it's not, it's not just Andy, Andy's going to put your gun in a drawer. It's, you know, you're, you might be afraid of them losing it or, or miscataloging it or, uh, just not getting it back, you yeah. know, and, right. or mistreating, you know, like they're out shooting it, you know, or whatever. And, <laughs> and if yeah. it's a nice, if it's a valuable gun, you know, like a Colt Python that your granddad gave you a stolen the box or something's got the receipt from, uh, Montgomery wards or something. You know, it's, um, it's, it's, and then just the general feeling is that Sacramento is just kind of out to get you. And it's not because they know what they're talking about. It's actually, they don't know what they're talking about. And, uh, so I like that. I think the incentive issue is really helpful. You might actually end up saving a lot of lives. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, keep, keep that up. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. Um, there was yeah, one more question that I wanted to ask you, but I forgot yeah, please. what it was. Okay. I was going to say, I could probably take one more question because I see my sure, alarm yeah. is going off I here. See, so. I see mine is too. I can't believe we went uh, this far into it, David. I thank you for, for coming on. Uh, yeah, yeah. I cannot remember what the, I think the red flag one, and there was another one that I just, I thought I should write it down and I didn't write it down, but it came. But um, I think we can just cut it off there. Uh, we, I've learned a lot from you. And I've really enjoyed being um, being able to have this conversation with you, David. 
Yeah, I, I have uh, enjoyed it uh, myself. I appreciate the opportunity as a non-Republican professor myself. But, uh, you know, You're I think not a that professor. We... <laughs> you know, I think we have to, and I try to do this in class and any time I have the opportunity, and this has been great for that, is to to model, you know, civil discussion about guns. And, you know, it doesn't happen enough. And I think if we, you know, had more opportunities uh, to yeah. talk to each other as, uh, you know, fellow citizens, whether we disagree on certain things or not, that, um, you know, just the, sh the shouting about guns is not getting us anywhere. No, it isn't. And it only puts people in fight or flight, which is not a nervous system conducive to solving um, problems that don't need to be solved uh, or that, that can't be solved that way. You need to be in rest and digest, which is, I think, where we were the whole time. And um, I, you know, I, I asked somebody on the I went to a, a talk last night with this Princeton guy. I asked him on the podcast. He he was fumbling around. He's like, um, well, I'm not a Republican. And I, I said, I said, if if you were to be invited on the Dennis Prager show, you would not be expected to be Dennis Prager. You know, it's it's the host that's Dennis Prager. You just be who you are. And that's mm -hmm. what I love about that is you were who you were. And I can be the Republican professor and we can just have a great time. And, uh, wow, I just realized someone might think, I think I'm Dennis Prager. No, I don't think I'm Dennis Prager. <laughs> there is no, you're going to talk yourself into a corner Dennis here. Prager. He's, he's irreplaceable as far as I concerned, but, but, um, yeah, thanks so much, David, for, uh, coming on professor of sociology at Wake Forest university, studier of gun culture and, uh, incredibly interesting conversation partner. I appreciate the time and uh, thanks so much. And maybe we'll do it again sometime. Okay. That sounds great. Awesome.